What's going on you zany and zestful zebus? Welcome to this week's episode of Total Pod Mode. My name is James, also known as Mr. Bames, and I'm joined as always by the wondrous Will, also known as Hoodafunk. And by the look in your face, it might be time for another round of, what was it, zoology with Mr. Bames? I think that's it, yeah. Uh, or uh, It was like, yeah, random animals or something like that. Yeah, whatever the hell it was called. <laughs> Do you need to know what a zebu is? I absolutely, yes, of course, yeah, it goes without asking. Uh, it's just basically, it looks like a cow. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, just yeah. like a, a herd. Just like animal. a brown cow. Fine, yeah. fine. It's got horns? Nothing too special. Yeah, got some horns on there. So a bull, probably, rather than a cow. Right, yeah, yeah. But kind of thinner. Z-E-B-U, for anyone that wants to look it up. Zebu. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the only ones that I actually didn't need to ask you how to spell. But with that lovely introduction out of the way, what we got coming up in this episode? Well, we've got our catch-up as usual. We've got a bit of news. We've got some sadness. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, we got Will trying to kill himself in the background there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Straight down the wrong hole. Oh, that was like full on explosion. I just like took a mouthful of uh, of my water that right there, and I had to spit it out like uh, like it was poison. Yeah, and I saw the look on your face. You looked genuinely concerned. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like, second. I'm sat here in front of my mic and the monitor and the webcam and stuff like that. I was genuinely thinking for a second. I was just about to spray everything with water, but no, thank God, I uh, kind of managed to like get it mostly down myself and <laughs> on the floor. So. I, I'm calling that a save. Yeah, no, well done. Yeah, no, that was a saving throw right there. For me, the concern was more that you were about to choke. That, that was yeah. really what I was <laughs> yeah, getting at. Rather, yeah. f*** the equipment. Yeah, it was just a weird situation where I just went to swallow and instead my throat tickled at that exact moment and uh, just needed to go the other way. Damn. Well, thank Unexpected. you for carrying on in such a professional <laughs> manner so that I can potentially put this in the edit. <laughs> Appreciate that. I'm not sure. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, thanks for at least carrying on in the cadence. Yeah, hey, man, I'm a professional. <laughs> I'll recover from that. What were we talking about, though? <laughs> oh, I was just doing an intro about what we were right. talking about. <laughs> Okay, okay, yeah. Back in the game, back in the game, as you were, sir. So what have we got coming up in this week's episode, I hear you ask? Well, we've got our catch-up as usual, we've got a bit of news, where we've got a couple of disappointing stories, but then, of course, some great things to talk about, potentially, as a certain event happened last week, if you're listening now, this week at the time of recording. And then we round off with uh, the next instalment of our journey into Mass Effect 2. But before that, let's hit them socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on X at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. So, Will, talk to me. What have you been playing this week? Uh, so, I'm probably not going to talk about many of the games that I've been playing this week, because I have actually managed to put quite a bit of time into a handful of games. Uh, but big news this week is that Armored Core, as of recording, released yesterday at 11pm for PC users, 12am on the 25th for console users. And I stayed up quite late last night, and I've also played quite a bit of it this evening as well, getting to grips with some of the mechanics of the game, uh, experimenting with the different mech choices and exploring some more of the missions. And I've got to say that so far my initial impressions are really positive. That's what we like to hear. Uh, The game is quite a looker, it looks quite nice graphically, perhaps not quite as polished or refined as something like uh, Elden Ring or Dark Souls, but I think that the game is set on a much larger scale. The battle arenas are pretty huge uh and you travel across them very fast so i think there's slightly less attention to detail for instance but uh in terms of like sort of seeing things from afar and as you move your way through it's still very nice looking even close up yeah i've seen some of the gameplay trailers and uh if it looks anything like that then i know what you mean it's a little bit jagged's not quite the right word but it's a little bit not smooth <laughs> yeah it's it's quite boxy but i think that's a bit of like a design choice in terms of the way that some of the levels are shaped but also yeah there are a lot of sort of big boxy structures and very linear walkways and things like that through the level i think a lot of that level stuff doesn't really come into play considering the fact that you've got a jetpack and you can fly around for the most part so regardless of the layout of the levels you're getting to wherever you need to be pretty quickly <laughs> yeah and to be fair as i was about to say despite all of that it does still look very good yeah like yeah, i think absolutely. as well because going on what you were just saying there the speed at which you seem to be moving around as well motion blur probably sort of smooths a lot of that out as well yeah i mean i've actually turned off a lot of those uh, uh features to be fair I, i'm not like a big fan of using them 
I mean, not to any degree does it look rough or anything like that in terms of um, when you're playing it. It's a very nice looking game. I think that in terms of uh, close-up detail, I mean, the, the scale of the game is very different. Um, you're bigger than like a massive battle helicopter in the game. So in terms of detail that you might used to be seeing on a small level in Dark Souls and Elden Ring, they've kind of forgone that for like the larger scale kind of effects when you jump on a cargo container for instance you're the size of about 10 of them combined so whenever you jump on one they just kind of fold in like they were made of plastic or something like that which is quite a good effect actually it does give you kind of a bit more of a feeling of power uh, a lot of the objects in the game you can kind of very quickly smash through and they don't tend to get in the way very much because you're just kind of like a ball of robotic fury for the most part using sort of cannons laser weapons shoulder mounted rockets uh, and various other kind of tools at your disposal. You even have a plasma sword quite early on in the game, which deals a bunch of damage close up, and you've got a lot of aerial moves that you can use in terms of your maneuverability. You've got your kind of standard walking around mode, and then you can press a button to enter a kind of a speedy mode, which is essentially just like sprint, I guess. It's the equivalent of... Similar sort of thing in the old Armour Core games as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But then you also have a, a dodge move that you can chain, and it uses what is essentially your stamina, your energy level in the game. Thrust meter, or whatever the f***. Uh, it's called, uh, I think it's just called EM charge or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds all roboty and sci-fi and shit, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The sword is actually very effective at taking on enemies in close range, and this game does actually have a kind of stagger mechanic in a way. If you barrage an enemy with enough rockets and light rounds, eventually their poise will break, and at that point you can go in and deal double damage in that window. Uh, and if you close in for a melee finisher, 99% of the time you're going to take the enemy out unless they're a boss. Very cool. And speaking of bosses, there is a hell of a lot of them in this game that I've experienced so far. I think I've probably worked my way through about six or seven so far. Uh, and, you know, that's considering I've probably played this game for maybe about four to five hours, so... Yeah, they're coming quite thick and fast. Are these boss bosses or mini bosses, or a combination of the two? I mean, they've got a big health bar at the top of the screen, so I think that's kind of our measure for a boss, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some of them could probably be cast as mini bosses. Some of them could probably be classed as gimmick bosses. Um, like I recently defeated a giant four-legged mech walking through a desert. It resembled uh, like the AT-ATs from Star Wars. Okay. Where you've got to shoot one of their legs to slow it down and then eventually board it and destroy some of its cannons all the while fighting through its defenses. It's got lots of sort of turrets based around it and a massive blue laser cannon as well that can shoot you across the desert beforehand. So you're using a lot of dodging mechanics and things that you'll be familiar using in Dark Souls. Uh, and when you're fighting another armoured core, those fights tend to be a bit more prolonged. They can withstand a lot more hits. And then the sort of posture break comes into play a lot more because you need to do that maybe two or three times before you can do enough damage with your sword to actually finally get the kill. Kind of like the equivalent of invaders, right? In terms of fight style of fight. I would say so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It definitely feels like you're fighting on an yeah, equal It's more of a PvP there. style fight. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So um, you mentioned sort of at the top of your um, discussion on uh, Armoured Core that you'd had quite a lot of time with customization and things like that. Talk to me a little bit about some of the options because uh, when I played the old Armoured Core game, I forget which one it was, two or three maybe on PS2, you had things like slightly different legs and like shoulder pieces that could make you lighter or heavier. You could have like tank wheels sometimes. You could have different heads and sh is it the same sort of thing or is it a bit more in depth or um i think it's it's similar in terms of what the things you're describing there but every single piece of your mech can be altered so you've got your head your core which is essentially a torso arms and legs and the variation there is pretty wild in terms of uh the weapons that you can use you can have a right-handed weapon a left-handed weapon uh two shoulder mounted weapons as well uh and those weapons can can vary quite significantly you can have sort of like a shield on your left shoulder whereas you can have uh heat seeking multi-targeting rockets on your right shoulder whilst you've got a plasma sword in your left hand and some sort of rapid fire gatling gun style thing in your right hand so you've got a huge array of weapons that you can swap out and use at any one time but back to the customization uh the legs as well i haven't actually unlocked very many so far but there is a lot of scope there in terms of the way that you can change up the gameplay i have seen players and enemies that have tank style tracks i've also seen uh ones that have four legs 
I'm sure all of these things will become unlockable. I've seen a lot of it in some of the random bits of preview that I accidentally saw a while back. So I think that in terms of the scope and building your own mech, uh, there is a lot to do there. It's kind of Monster Hunter level in terms of mix and matching around all of your different parts. And it seems like all of these things will quite drastically affect the gameplay as well. You've got short and long range weapons, some that act sort of like rapid fire SMGs, but built for... Uh, obviously armored cores. You've got other weapons that are kind of like focused laser cannons. A lot of them have dual firing modes, so if you hold the button instead of press the button, then they will either lock onto multiple targets, do a sustained burst fire, fire a massive laser pulse, various different kind of upgraded versions of the shots that they originally fire. Nice. It does sound very similar to the armored core game I played, but obviously everything dialed up to 11,000. Yeah, yeah. It's like four generations later or whatever the hell yeah i think that it's preserved a lot of the original gameplay uh playing it does feel very familiar and it does still feel like uh, an older game because in a way when you think about it the combat is bound to be slightly more clunky in one sense and you can't move around as fast as you would hope to in something like dark souls or elden ring because you're you're playing as a giant mech as opposed to just like a human or anything like that but all of that stuff is intentionally built into the game and it makes the combat much more focused on timing and spacing, a very heavy emphasis on not panic dodging away and things like that because you will get caught out by the various heat-seeking missiles and things that can attack you. So the combat ends up feeling a lot more slower, but somehow a lot more methodical as well in the way that you do it. You're focusing a lot more on your stamina bar, I felt like, than I ever have in Dark Souls. I guess if it's working on a sort of a charge system, then that makes a bit of sense, though. And uh, again, I guess coming off the fighting and my final question from the Nostalgia Bank, at least, is there still an arena mode in it? And I don't mean sort of online arena mode. I mean, like, just... Uh, well, it could be, I guess, online. But back in the one I played, there was, like, a, a ranking system and you fought your way. You just fought one-on-one -on -one different mechs in an arena mode. Does it still have that that you found? So I haven't experienced the arena mode just yet. But at the moment, I think I'm still very much into the early parts of the game. I haven't even discovered any sort of multiplayer mode yet. Although I think that it is present in the game as well. So still too early to tell uh, exactly what all of the modes are in the game. Uh, but to reassure you, perhaps, there is very much an arena ranking level as well as a, another ranking level as well uh, so there is definitely something like that coming i don't know what form it'll take in compared to the old games but uh yeah it, it sounds like it'll be in there in some capacity at least excellent and uh just to round off the uh customization chats as well in the game you can individually color each segment of your armored core so helmet all your different body parts can be done individually along with individual patterns and there are also plenty of stickers in the game where you have a facility to kind of make your own custom stickers as well. So you really are going to be able to decorate these mechs until your heart's content. And given the massive library of weapons and different variations and components that you can put on your character, I don't think you're going to get bored anytime soon of just sitting there and kind of making like Lego Builder style uh, <laughs> weapons of death. Yeah, get the old Total Pod Mode logo in there. Oh my put god, those, yeah. Put on your back. <laughs> I hope that uh, if I do try and get the Total Pod Mode logo in there, I just pray that it wasn't quite as onerous as uh, when I tried to do that in GTA Five. I think I spent about three to four hours trying to get that done. Looked dope, though. <laughs> yeah, it did. The end result was kind of worth it. If only we played a little bit more of it. So um, suffice to say that this game has a lot of promise from initial reception. I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm looking forward to getting a lot more deeper into this arena mode that you've mentioned now, as well as the mech customization. At the moment, I'm kind of uh, just a humanoid mech using a shield, some homing rockets, a sword and a rapid fire cannon type weapon that you can charge and it will release a burst shot. But I'm looking forward to getting into some of the more advanced weapons and playing some more zany mechs, more importantly. I want to kind of rock around as a fairly immobile tank just to see how you can get through these levels because I'm sure that you will still have some sort of rocket booster. But it'll just be interesting to, uh, to see how you can maneuver around those levels given that you'll be able to not move around so much. Maybe you can mitigate it with the fact that you'll just have unceasing firepower, which is what I'm hoping for. Exactly. And a perfect 360 degree turning circle. You just go whoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if they've kept that in. Something tells me that that sort of stuff they would have uh, kind of balanced out now, I think. Yeah, we'll see. But that's me for Armored Core, man. What about you? What have you been playing this week? Uh, nice and easy for me this week because I've only played one game. And uh, I did manage to start and finish it in this week, which I was quite impressed with. Nice. Another completion? One off the list? No. It was, it's just oh, it's just one. another one. It's another one you yeah, quickly put on one. the list to take off the list. I didn't even put it on the list. 
Right, didn't even make it on the list. No, but uh, I thought I'd just finish off the Spider's Odyssey. I played the Technomancer this week. Oh, right, okay. So uh, you've kind of finally made your way through all the games you intended to play, it sounds like, based on uh, last week. You're not going to go into, uh, I forget the name of it now. Of Orcs and Man? Yeah. I've got it now. It's £1.9 in a sale, so I do (laughs) own it. So I might do, but... uh, I've done all the ones, as you say, that I've intended to do and that I'd meant to do. So how did you find Technomancer? I had a blast, man. It was really, really good. It's really interesting now that I've played all of them because from Mars Warlogs all the way up to Greedfall, you can see the evolution through the games. Of course, yeah. So Mars Warlogs is the earliest, I believe, and it's kind of... The bare bones are there, it's a bit crude, but it's really good fun and really satisfying once you get it down. Ghost to Bound by Flame, everything's just more refined, they've got a better parry system and all that good stuff, and it's big improvement, but still tough, still spiders. Move into Technomancer, and they've just improved that system even more. Possibly to the point where I'd say, from a melee perspective, it's the best one across all of them, including Greedfall. Oh, right, okay, okay. You have four weapon stances that you can use, kind of similar to the other games, where I think you've had up to three in some of them. And can you use these sort of interchangeably during combat? You can use them, yeah, you just change stance, basically, almost like in Neo, and you get the new option. Um, So you can have a staff, you can have a knife and a handgun at the same time, or you can have what I used as my main, a shield and a mace. Nice, okay. And then you can also have, like, um, unarmed, like, and you do, like, electric fisty stuff, but I didn't really f*** with that. But when I say mace and, like, knife and stuff, but remember this is still set in, the, like, the world of Mars Warlogs, so it's all kind of, like, just flung together bits of metal and junk and stuff, and it's really <laughs> cool looking. Uh, it's a little bit more sophisticated because you're not a prisoner of war in this one, you are a technomancer. So you start off, like, kind of in the army, but then there's, a, there's basically loads of different warring factions. This game takes place at the same time as Mars Warlogs takes place, so it's running in parallel. Right, right. So, for example, the first boss you fight in Mars Warlogs is the Technomancer Sean at the end of the prison level. He's actually your master in this one, so he's teaching you at the start, and then he leaves, and it turns out he's left to go take on and do what he was doing in Mars Warlogs. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, that's kind of nice to play for fans of the series then, yeah. They're tying the games together a little bit. Yeah, and the other one is that um, there's a, a mutant that you help in the prison in the first one, and... And you actually meet him later in this one. He becomes the leader of the Free Mutant City, if you choose him to be, because you get a choice in who the leader is, which is a mission that's also in Greedfall. Like everything's linked in certain ways. And uh, it was really good, man. I mean, I, I, I can see why it has had the reception that it seemingly has had, which is that some people like really love it and some people just flat out hate it because it is tough to get into. But I think that all Spiders games are kind of like that. They have their own way of doing combat and you need to enjoy it to get good at it. It's tough otherwise yeah it kind of it sounds a bit marmite in terms of uh yeah their approach to gaming but it doesn't sound like they've been tempted to change up the formula either so they've obviously got confidence behind what they're doing i mean it's been developed of course but yeah exactly the, the core formula is essentially the same yes but they have just made it better every time greedfall probably plateaus but i'm i'm really only saying that because greedfall doesn't have a shield and the shield in technomance is just so good but magic in greedfall is that's the way i've played it and it's amazing so not really too asked if the melee is better in technomancer but yeah man story was excellent the only criticism i probably have of it is that it's an rpg right there's a lot of side quests and therefore a lot of backtracking to areas you've already been and this is present in greedfall like this is this is not a new thing but in technomancer because of the way the game plays out in that you're part of the main army but then someone like basically plans a coup against you and basically gets you kicked out of town and whenever you go back into that town everyone's hostile and uh the way that some of the side quests are set out i had to go back to this f***ing town so many times and do the same route but your fast travel route to the town is nowhere near anything that ever needed to go down so you have to walk through loads of enemies every single time and it became a bit of a chore yeah that sounds a little bit like content padding but uh in terms of the length of the game itself it's it's taking you this week to do uh were you kind of burning the midnight oil on this 24 hours all in all yeah no i wasn't really i wouldn't say i was burning the midnight oil on it uh last night i did because i could smell the finish line and i was like (laughs) damn i want to get it done before the podcast so yeah but i wouldn't say no you know it's every evening basically the only thing i've played this week yeah yeah no it sounds like it good though man you finally completed your saga for now anyway until you uh until you decide to pick up orcs of men i suppose I've got less hope for that one, given your description of it last week. Yeah, man. I mean, I have no intention of playing that anytime soon. But as I say, I picked it up in the sale. I have it now. So who knows? Maybe. 
I think that in terms of the development, I think that one plops in somewhere in between Mars Warlogs and uh, the Technomancer. I'm not sure if it's older than Bound by Flame or not. But yeah, no, I've got my next sort of couple of months are pretty meticulously planned out in terms of gaming there's some obviously i mean starfields next week um so that that's obviously going to take up a lot of my time then we've got lies of p and then uh, another game that we're going to talk a little bit about in the news actually so i won't say it now so basically i'm just cleaning house a little bit but because i was doing that that is all i've played this week so that is all i've got for the catch-up and therefore i think it's time that we move on to the news <laughs> So with our first news story this week, starting on a bit of a negative unfortunately, but uh, Bioware have had to lay off 50 members of staff who had previously worked on Dragon Age and Mass Effect titles. Sad news indeed. Very sad. So these employees had been working on the new entry into the Dragon Age series, which is called Dreadwolf, and uh, have been let go so that the team can become a more focused and agile studio, apparently. Yeah, that's just studio jargon for the fact that they just had to make cutbacks and they're losing the team. The team got downsized. Looking at some of the other quotes in this article, it all fits the same picture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so according to our friends over at Gamerant, this announcement came via a blog post on the official Bioware website and explains that the layoffs are also part of a goal to preserve the health of the studio, which I'm assuming there is one go. of the comments that you were mentioning. <laughs> yeah. So um, apparently those that have been sacked are being offered as many internal opportunities as possible and are being urged to apply for a significant number of roles across all of EA's other studios. However, not all of the 50 workers will find a new role within the company. And this is particularly interesting to me, at least, given that Dreadwolf, I believe, was initially meant to release around now, but was delayed until summer 2024 at the earliest. So you would have thought, if anything, they'd be bringing more people on to help, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it wouldn't be out of uh, out of the question that they may lay off these 50 workers, who I assume were sort of under some sort of semi-permanent permanent contract, uh, and then were laid off. I, I imagine that uh, they wouldn't be on contracting people and uh, and getting in work for cheap. I mean, I know that Microsoft is quite fond of uh, buying contracted workers in and then uh, getting rid of them before, I think it's a period of two years, right before they <laughs> earn actual workers' rights. Uh, so, you know, I mean... <laughs> well, this is EA, so... I wouldn't be beyond thinking that... Uh, that that may well happen here in terms of finally pushing Dreadwolf out the door. But this is sad news nonetheless. 50 workers that now have to look for other jobs. I highly doubt that any of these significant number of roles across EA's other studios will be as well-paying or as beneficial in terms of employment terms for these people that have been laid off. This is a very blanket statement, and this is all kind of just said to preserve the, the ego of the company, I feel. EMOTIONAL DAMAGE! Honestly, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it was a cost-cutting measure. I mean, let's be real, I love Bioware, but they kind of haven't really had many hits recently. I can think of more failures recently than I can hits. I'm looking at you, Anthem. Yeah, and the most recent Mass Effect attempt as well, given that we're, we're talking about that at the moment. Andromeda wasn't particularly well-received either. In fact, it was openly mocked on release. Yeah, exactly. It had issues, big issues. But yeah, whatever the reasons are, it's still sad times. And on a personal note, uh, you know, I don't mean to single people out necessarily, but I saw that uh, one of the members of staff to be out the door was uh, a lady called Mary Kirby, and apparently she is responsible for one of my favourite characters in Dragon Age 2 and Dragon Age Inquisition, Varric. He's a dwarven companion you can get with a big old crossbow, which I believe was called <laughs> Francesca, but I can't remember its name. Sad times, man. Sad times. Great character. Well, I'm sure the fans of the Dragon Age series will be pouring one out for Mary Kirby then. Yeah, shout outs. And moving on to our second news story, which is uh, also sad, but slightly happier sad, I guess. But uh, Charles Martinet, the original voice of Mario, has retired from Nintendo. 27 years, no less. 27 years of that lovely, lovely voice. It's me, Mario! So in a uh, statement on the Nintendo of America X account, they state that Charles Martinet has been the original voice of Mario in Nintendo games for a long time, as far back as Super Mario 64, and he's now moving into the brand new role of Mario Ambassador. <laughs> With this transition, he will be stepping back from recording character voices for our games, but he'll continue to travel the world sharing the joy of Mario and interacting with you all. It has been an honour working with Charles to help bring Mario to life for so many years, and we want to thank and celebrate him. Please keep an eye out for a special video message from Shigeru Miyamoto and Charles himself, which we will post at a future date. So, big news this. Big news in the gaming world. One of the most recognisable video game characters ever is taking a step down, and uh, it's very unlikely that we'll be hearing him in future games, unless, 
and this is a slight suspicion that I have, they've recorded enough Charles Martinet noises <laughs> at this point for all of the Mario games. Surely they can just splice and dice and use AI for the rest of time now. Like, Mario's voice is established. We're done. <laughs> Charles Martinet, thank you very much. AI, you can take over now. <laughs> Maybe. And when, you know, if they do that, then he's got some sweet royalties coming his way, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope he's got some nice arrangement like that for himself. Oh, of course he will, yeah. And the other option, of course, is uh, it's a very impressionable voice. I'm sure there's plenty of other people who could do it as well, if needed. But as you say, I've, I suspect that they probably have enough material from the years, because I haven't played many of the really recent Mario games. In fact, I haven't played any of them. Does he have, like, proper voice lines and shit, or is it still just, it's a me, and like... Yeah, it's just him just going, waha! <laughs> I can't do it, but yeah, just the noises. And stuff like that. But yeah, shout out to Charles Martinet, a legend of the game. I wonder what this brand new role of Mario Ambassador is. Is this a paid position, perhaps? Or is this uh, is this maybe more something that he's just kind of doing as a gig and this is like an honorary title? You know, he, they'll buy him the tickets to the conventions, send him around. And I think it's honestly, it's good for the series, isn't it? And the fact that they're taking care of him would only kind of help to restore some of the lost faith in Nintendo. Well, and rightly so, because they should be looking after him. He's a national treasure. <laughs> yeah. And he should be treated yeah. as such. Yeah, I mean, it, you, it's undeniable that, uh, you know, in this day and age, so many people find that voice so recognisable. It is a voice as well that's kind of very widely impersonated as well. So, yeah, and I feel like it's, in a way, kind of intrinsically tied to video gaming as like a large genre sort of thing. It will definitely go down in the history books. I, I would go further than that, mate. I would say it's actually infiltrated more of pop culture, not just video games. The, the Mario character and the voice of Mario is synonymous with the 90s my childhood in every aspect yeah absolutely if you're going to have a book of the 90s mario would absolutely be featured in there exactly but shout outs charles enjoy your retirement and our final news story this week perhaps unsurprisingly is gamescom 2023 that's right at the time of recording it is currently taking place we're about halfway through with the the event due to finish on sunday the 27th of august so we can't do a full review at this time for obvious reasons but here are some of the things that have got me excited so far at the very least so not only did we see more from some games that are imminent, such as Starfield, Modern Warfare 3, which we've spoken about on the pod previously, and of course the next season of Diablo 4, which is going to be the season of blood. we got some vampire shit going down, I think. Yeah, there's a new vampire class coming in. I think they're putting back in the vampire huntress. But we also got to see a little bit more of some games that are on the horizon. So I feel like something would be amiss if we didn't mention, uh, first of all, we had yet another uh, kind of like a stage bomber that uh, jumped on and tried to steal the limelight from our main man Jeff Keighley out there hosting Gamescom 2023. It was something like within the first five to ten minutes of the show, uh, someone clearly attempted to rush on stage and shout into the microphone. It was pretty inaudible what they were saying. Uh, so this was obviously cut pretty short. You could see from the studio in the back that very quickly about six security guards descended <laughs> on the guy. Uh, wrestled him away and Jeff was able to kind of maintain on topic I think uh, he even mentioned himself he was like very disappointed and tried to bring this back that the whole evening was about gaming and uh, it was disappointing that someone had tried that but this was obviously uh, you know an attempt at getting some uh, clout or, or popularity from ruining a game show and who can deny it given the fact that uh, Matan the kid who crashed the Summer Games Fest 2023 uh, you know he's now become sort of like a minor internet celebrity so uh, it works you can't argue with that drawing your attention to yourself like that seems to be a pretty quick way of uh, earning some notoriety in this day and age yeah for clarity we do not endorse a total pop mode uh, interrupting video games awards even though will is just giving it a very glowing review there <laughs> don't do it kids so with gamescom having started i've picked out a few games here that i thought were particularly interesting the first one I just thought we'd give a quick mention to because we spoke about it the other episode is uh, we do actually have a release date for Tekken 8 now. We were speculating that it could be as early as holiday season 23 and turns out, even though we scoffed at that, we weren't actually far out with that. Uh, it's actually been given a release date the 24th of January 2024. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be great news for fans of Tekken to come out so early. Uh, yeah, absolutely great news. And we got to see a few more of the features that it involves as well. Uh, like the kind of making some sort of mini avatar system where they've clearly uh, following the likes of Street Fighter in the fighting game series where you will actually create your own uh, sort of uh, me character uh, from the <laughs> Wii series. 
that you can then walk around and use that character to interact with the various arena and online modes as well. Okay. And this is essentially like a, a dress-em-up doll that you can send around to interact. Uh, and it won't be a fighter necessarily that you'll be using in the actual fights, but it's more like an online avatar representation of yourself or whatever you want to make it to be so that you interact with people on that type of maybe slightly more personal setting than just clicking through menus, if that makes sense. I kind of know what you mean, and fair play, that sounds quite cool. Yeah, it's going to be like a little avatar hub that you walk around and interact with other players before agreeing to fight them in Tekken, uh, and you can customise what your character looks like. There you go. If you pre-order the game, <laughs> you can dress your character up like Paul from Tekken. Yeah. How good's that? <laughs> and if you spend £10 on this skin pack... Yeah, absolutely. This is just a whole brand new way of uh, monetizing. Uh, instead of doing sort of additional characters now, it'll be monetizing and customizing your avatar. And honestly, if that's the way that it stays, in terms of that's where the microtransactions are resting, in terms of character customization, and not behind unlocking characters that they're going to release down the line, I'm all for it. I couldn't give a shit what my avatar looked like. I more interested in making sure that I have the full roster of characters to play with. Oh, there's still going to be paired DLC characters. It'd just be an additional monetization, I'm afraid. I like your faith, but nah, not going to happen. Well, I mean, I've kind of learned my lesson after getting burned with other fighting games that kind of more for you if you pick these things up straight away and then buy each subsequent DLC pack. I mean, fair play if you're doing it for content or, uh, you know, pretty much solely playing that game. I mean, honestly, fair play to you however you want to spend your money, but... Uh, I don't see that as good value. Myself, I felt quite ripped off having to pay quite significant amounts of money to unlock new characters. I agree. So the next game I've got down here is more really, I thought, because it would be of interest to you, Will, but we got a bit more of a look at Alan Wake 2 as well. We did, and I just got progressively more confused as time went on during <laughs> that trailer. I'm kind of losing the plot now in terms of what's happening. I'm starting to understand that... Alan Wake has something up with his mind where he can kind of fabricate reality out of his delusions or something. You're asking the wrong person, really. I, I just know he's... Isn't he meant to be an author? He is. Yeah, he is an author. Yeah. So it kind of... Yeah, that seems like uh, a concept that's been explored before, an author that's able to kind of generate his ideas into reality. I'm sure there's a Ewan McGregor movie out there that follows a, a some sort of plot line like that. Perfectly possible, man. The only other thing I know about the game is he shines a torch at people. I say people, zombies. Yeah, that seems to be one of the main mechanics of the first game that they would have like a darkness surrounding them and you would need to blast them with light from your torch before you could actually shoot them and damage them that was a core mechanic of the first game and it seems like that's making a return here i didn't get as much of a sense from this one of the actual the combat and the gameplay in it it seemed to be a bit more of storyline exposition and things like that uh, which I was actually hoping to see a little bit more of, because I think when we saw the trailer in Summer Games Fest, we did see something that resembled more actual gameplay. It's definitely one that I've got my eye on, and you know me, I'm a sucker for a horror game, but uh, we'll just have to see there. Yeah, it's not one that I'm massively interested in, but obviously it's, it's big enough that people are going to be excited, right? I know that people have been clamoring for this one for a while, so bring it on, I say. I'm more interested in this one than I was in the original, i got to say, and I think some of that is since playing Control as well and seeing what one of their more sort of polished recent titles can do. Uh, that's got me interested to check this one out. Fair play. But the next one that we're going to talk about is actually one that I'm super interested in. And that is a game called Black Myth Wukong. And this game looks pretty f***ing cool to me. It's been quite some time since I saw some footage of this game. This exactly. game kind of disappeared into the dark a little bit. And honestly, I'm pretty sure at one point in time, I've forgotten about it and replaced it in my mind with Wulong, given the similar title names. I'm pretty sure that at a certain point in time, when you mentioned Wulong, uh, at that point, I just kind of assumed that this Black Myth Wukong was that game. Yeah, I kind of know what you mean, because it feels like that this first sort of came to my attention at least, like, years ago. I'm sure it wasn't, but it feels like ages ago, and then I haven't seen anything since. I think it's maybe been nearly a year, at least, uh, for me. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm pretty sure, actually, even on the pod, I mentioned something about when you said that Wolong was out and you'd played it that I wasn't aware there was a character creator. I'm pretty sure I was talking about in reference to this game where I'm almost certain that there isn't a character creator. You're you're playing as one character. Uh, yeah, potentially. I didn't get that from this trailer. It looked like it could Did be you know? a bit... No, it looked like you would be able to make your character. Because bear in mind, a lot of the Wolong trailers were a set character too. Yeah, so... but I think in this one, you're meant to be playing as the monkey god that wields the staff. I think that is the, the sole character of this game. So unless you can play as other gods, I'd, I'd be surprised. I was going to say, could you not morph into it from your human form into the monkey god? Maybe it's a weapon art type thing, like a form. I don't know. This is the thing. I don't know too much about it. I just think it looks really cool. It's kind of similar combat wise to sort of kind of between Souls and Wolong, I'd say. 
It's got a jumping mechanic to dodge sort of huge area of effect attacks. It kind of resembled to me Ludwig from Bloodborne in his phase two when he's slicing the, the Moonlight Greatsword at you and you got beads yeah, coming at you. Yeah. It's that sort of deal. So there's jumping, but then there's also close dodges and like really cool looking melee stuff. Didn't see a stamina bar that I remember. So maybe it's going to be more hack and slashy than straight Soulslike combat. I think that they removed the UI honestly in yeah, a lot of maybe, those bits exactly. yeah but it just looks really cool man right up my street so it was nice to see it back and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing more of it because i don't think it's got release date still yeah this is definitely one to keep your eyes on one that i'm personally looking forward to as well a lot yes and speaking of that the next one i've got on this list is lords of the fallen which we also got a little sort of an additional look at this one does have a release date, which is the 13th of October of this year. And I'm really hyped for this one too. Kind of came out of nowhere, as I spoke about on the pod a few weeks back. I sort of shat on the first Lord of the Fallen for years and then played it again recently and really enjoyed it. This remake just looks really good. I say remake. Reimagining looks really good. It looks like it's taken a lot more from Dark Souls. The classes are really intriguing. The weapons look really intriguing. I'm just, I'm here for it. I'm so here for it and I can't wait for that game. Is that one that interests you at all? or? So I didn't pick up The Lords of the Fallen, uh, the original title, initially. I waited for that game to come on sale. And i got to say that this one does look cool. Uh, but again, I'm in no rush to pick this one up. I don't really have any brand loyalty here. Um, I don't have it's like super fond memories of the original game, you know, although I didn't find it bad by any means. So I think that this is one that uh, I'll probably sleep on on initial release, but we'll pick up when it comes on sale at some point. There's only one more game I wanted to talk about, really, Will, and it's an homage to you. I know how much you enjoyed this one uh, when you were playing it a bit last year. We finally got a PS5 release date for Scorn. Oh, good news. Yeah, it's nice that PlayStation 5 players will will actually be able to get hold of that one. Uh, I'd be interested to know the appetite for sales on that, though, considering sort of the initial peak of interest there. Uh, I think a lot of people were very keen to look at this game and uh, appreciate the art style and stuff like that. But uh, I'd be interested to know about the amount of people that finished this game, given the sort of the difficult puzzle elements. To be honest, man, I think it's more to do with the fact that this one was an Xbox exclusive for so long. So I, I kind of agree with you. I don't know if there's too much of an appetite to play the game now. But there might be people that are PlayStation owners that have been waiting all this time to play it even if they do just want to try it out because it looks kind of cool, they might be wanting to get it. So maybe they're here for it, maybe not. But I thought it would be cool to bring up because I know that you have a soft spot for this game. PlayStation 5 users rejoice. They're certainly used to waiting a long time for things. Kept you waiting, huh? Uh, So another title that I wanted to bring up as part of this section was actually one that I briefly mentioned at the Summer Games Fest and we got to see another quick little glimpse at it and this was actually as part of the pre-show uh so the game that i'm talking about is called post trauma where i believe you're playing as either a train driver or a train station attendant walking around what appears to be an abandoned subway slash train station uh and this game has a heavy resemblance to the original silent hill titles uh not just through some of the game design like the kind of industrial and tiled environments that you're walking around that are kind of corrupted by weird fleshy objects and disturbing imagery uh that stuff plays into it but also the kind of the slightly strange choice of camera angles as you walk down corridors and the camera follows you as well it just seems like a lot of the design choices the slower style of control it definitely looks like it could be a tank controls type kind of game i don't think that it necessarily will be but you know if you were to sort of blur your eyes you could absolutely uh forgive yourself thinking this was a silent hill 2 remake i think it's made by a smaller studio but the look of the game is really impressive they're obviously using lighting in a really good way and the general art style of the game all i can really say is it just strongly resembles silent hill and uh and for me that's a good thing seal of approval i I mean some of the rooms that you walk into in that game that's not to say that it looks like entirely derivative by any means but just looks like a ps2 game yes I understand. What <laughs> no, I meant like derivative in the sense that they were kind of like just stealing ideas straight from Silent Hill. Uh, you can sort of maybe in some sense say that, but at the same time, there is definitely some unique, disturbing visual imagery in there. Uh, and for a lot of people who won't be familiar with the Silent Hill series at this point, uh, this game will hopefully generate like, uh, you know, a bit more interest in survival horror games, uh, which apparently this game is pinned to be. There you go. If you haven't seen some footage of that already, I would definitely definitely suggest fans of horror games fans of silent hill games or fans of the more scarier uh tense resident evil games definitely don't sleep on this one and give it a look there you go post trauma 
So with all those lovely games to look forward to, that concludes our coverage of Gamescom, the first half-ish of Gamescom at least, for this week. And that brings us to the end of the news. So why don't we move over to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. So we pick up the story, having just recruited four new members to Shepard's dream team and saving most of the human colony of Horizon from being taken by the Collectors. The Collectors did manage to escape with roughly a third of the population, but the automated defence turrets that we helped fix made their mark and damaged the Collector craft. We reported back to our Cerberus benefactor, the Elusive Man, and he gave us three more dossiers so that we could continue our recruitment drive, the Assassin, the Justicar and the Quarian. Two of these, the Assassin and the Justicar, are reported to be on the planet Ilium. So that is where we will begin our journey this week. Ilium is a predominantly Asari planet that fancies itself as a business hub, with different laws than most other planets which allow them to partake in many business practices, some less savoury than others. I'm looking at you, contractual servitude. Upon arrival, we are greeted by an Asari who tells us that the usual docking fees have been covered by none other than our former squad mate, or lover in James's case, Liara Tassoni. The Asari greeter also tells us that Liara is now an information broker, and that she would like to see us as soon as possible. Sensing the opportunity to get intel on our two potential recruits, as well as to reunite with an old friend, we head straight to her office. We enter Liara's office and, much like many of our other former squad mates, she's happy to see us, but surprised given that she had heard we were dead. Not sure how your meeting went down, Will, but at this point Julia Shep got a cheeky snog as well, before sitting down to discuss business. We learn from Liara that both the Assassin and the Justicar are indeed both on Ilium, and get some information as to why they are both here. The Assassin, a drell called Thane Krios, is targeting a corrupt executive and the Justicar, an Asari called Samara, is in the area on business. We are given some contacts who may be able to help us further and are sent on our way. At this point I asked Liara if she wanted to join the crew, but she sadly declined so that she could focus on some personal business, tracking down the Shadow Broker. A story that could be played out in the Lair of the Shadow Broker DLC. We, however, have bigger fish to fry at this stage so we head out in search of our first contact, an Asari woman named Serena in the transport terminal, who can help us find fame. We speak to Serena, showing differing levels of respect based on our different playstyles, and find out that Thane is heading into the Dantius Towers to take out Nasana Dantius. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she gave us a side quest in Mass Effect 1 to take out the leader of a rival faction, who just so happened to be her sister, just to give you an idea of the type of person we're dealing with. Yeah, proper scumbag. Serena advises us that the towers are currently undergoing renovation works which are being overseen by the Eclipse Mercenary Group, who are on Nasana's payroll. With the warnings out of the way, she offers to take us to the towers. We have an opportunity to change our squad before heading off in Serena's car. And at this point, to be honest, I was quite settled on Grunt and Garrus. That was pretty much my two going forward. I'm kind of mixing and matching a little bit, but it tends to always be Jack and then either Zaid or Miranda, depending on my mood. Fitting to the styles of play that we're both doing, I think. Yeah. Although, to be fair, Grunt and Garrus can go either way. Yeah, I would say Garrus is a bit of a renegade. And Grunt is too, <laughs> to be oh, fair. Oh, sure. Yeah, he's a Krogan. Yeah. <laughs> So Serena drops us off at the base of the tower and the first thing we see is some defenceless Salarian custodians being brutally gunned down by Eclipse mercs. The Salarians do not last long and the mechs then turn their attention to our crew. However, a couple of mechs aren't going to stop the mighty Commander Shepard and are dispatched in short order, allowing us to enter the towers. After a short while we meet an injured Salarian who is very much on death's door. During our conversation with this Salarian we have the option to perform a Paragon Interrupt, I, naturally, took this opportunity, saved the Salarian's life, and was able to get a little bit more information out of him regarding the enemies in the tower. How did you deal with this one, Will? Yeah, uh, so this was another option where I just ignored the Paragon prompt that jumped on screen. Uh, I let this guy bleed out, unsurprisingly. And, uh, you know, as he asked me to reassure him that I was going to go look for his friends, I told him as he was uttering his last few words that uh, I didn't have time to help his friends either, and uh, I had a mission to do already. Fair play, that's what uh, old Gillian would do. Ruthless she is. Random aside, this is actually the moment when I, in my Renegade playthrough, that made me want to play the Paragon playthrough. I got, I, he, this guy was so sympathetic when he was dying. <laughs> I was like, god damn, I really want to save you, but I'm not going to, because my character wouldn't. I would argue that, in this game at least, 
this is one of the first like downright evil things uh, that you can do as a renegade rather than just sort of being a renegade. This one feels particularly bad. It was just the fact that he's like gasping for air as he's talking to you. He's like fucked. And it, like, yeah. the, it was really well voice acted in my opinion. It really got me. I was like, oh damn, I really want to save this guy. I can't breathe. Please help me. My chest is... Come on. He can't help us anymore. With our choice made, we continue to fight our way through the tower, battling countless mechs and Eclipse mercenaries. As we work our way up, we get multiple confirmations that we are on the right track, as Fane is leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. From that statement, you may think that his work is sloppy and incredibly renegade-like. However, either through random comms messages or conversations with various Salarian workers who have hidden themselves away, we hear that his work is smooth and subtle, all happening in the blink of an eye before anyone has a chance to react. This explains why Nasana and her mercenaries are up on such high alert, and we're clearly dealing with a skilled professional here. We finally make our way to the top, where we must cross a bridge over to the second tower that makes up Dantius Towers. The bridge is covered in mechs and mercenaries, and we also have to deal with strong winds that can knock us off balance. As we get towards the other side, a final squadron of rocket drones and an Eclipse Elite are all that stand in our way. After defeating these enemies, we can finally confront Nasana and, hopefully, find Thane. As we enter Nasana's office, there is no sign of Thane as Nasana stands there with her Eclipse bodyguards. At this point, Nasana is under the impression that we are the ones who have been sent to take her out, and even tries to bribe us, offering us double what we are being paid simply to let her leave. We keep her talking long enough for Thane to silently drop from above, take out all of Nasana's bodyguards before finally taking Nasana out. A proper display of badassery this was. Yeah, her head just explodes. <laughs> and then he just sits down and prays. Yeah, guy's a bit of a widow. <laughs> we have a brief conversation with Thane at this point, who thanks us for being a good distraction. He goes on to say that this was meant to be his last job, and that he is slowly dying from a terminal illness and wants to make the world a better place before his departure. We explain our mission to him and he agrees that the fight against the Collectors is a noble cause and that he will join us. We welcome Thane to our crew and head to the transport hub on Ilium to begin the search for our next potential recruit, Samara the Justicar. The contact we were given by Liara was an officer Dara, who lets us know that Samara can be found not too far from the local police station. We jump into a cab and are whisked off to yet another section of Ilium. As soon as we arrive in this new section, we are greeted by a cutscene where a Volus merchant named Pitney Four is being stopped from leaving Ilium by an Asari detective called Anaya. He is not allowed to leave as he is a suspect in the murder of his business partner, a crime which he claims he is innocent of. We have the option to speak to Pitney, who is clearly scared of the Justicar, but advises us that she can likely be found by the crime scene where his business partner was killed. We head into the detective's office to speak to Anaya, who is clearly very keen to get rid of the Justicar. The reasons for this soon become clear. Anaya's superiors have ordered her to arrest the Justicar, however doing so would mean that the Justicar would need to kill her so that she could honour her Justicar code. Basically anyone who impedes, or tries to impede, the Justicars needs to go. We explain that we are here to try and recruit the Justicar, and Anaya, clearly pleased that the solution to her problems has just fallen into her lap, points us in the direction of the crime scene and tells her officers to let us pass. We make our way to the crime scene, taking out a couple of Eclipse mercenaries en route, and as we enter the scene we get a taste of Samara's powers as she casually throws a mercenary around with her biotic abilities before doing the old high heel neck break stompy move. We have a brief chat here and explain that we are looking to recruit Samara for our mission, but we are told that she cannot join us until she has fulfilled her obligations on Ilium, to discover the name of a ship that a dangerous fugitive has escaped on. At this point, Detective Anaya enters the scene and sheepishly states that she has been ordered to take Samara into custody. Lady Luck is truly smiling on Anaya today, however, as per the Justicar code, Samara is duty-bound to accept for a period of 24 hours, after which time she will begin killing if they try to detain her further. We offer to find the name of the ship whilst Samara is detained on the proviso that she will join us when we do. Samara accepts and suggests that we start our search with none other than Pitney 4, the Volus from earlier. We return to the police station to ask Pitney what he knows. During this conversation there is an opportunity for a renegade interruption while Pitney sp tries to spin some BS. I naturally ignored this prompt and was able to sweet talk Pitney into giving me a copy of the pass used to enter the hangar. How did you handle this one, Will? So I pull out my gun! Oh! 
Safe to say, James, uh, I quickly pulled out my gun and pointed it straight at his temple. Now armed with the pass, we can take the elevator to the Eclipse hangar. We fight our way through the Eclipse mercenaries and have the option to blow up some canisters which contain a toxic orange vapour. We know from our conversation with Pitney 4 that this is a drug called Minogen X3, which greatly increases biotic abilities, but is toxic, which he had sold to the mercenaries. Probably explains why he's so keen to leave Ilium. As we head further into the facility, we run into an Asari mercenary who is hiding. She tells us that she is a recent inductee of the Eclipse mercenaries called Elnora. There is an option whilst talking to her for a renegade interruption which I obviously took, leading to me gunning her down where she stood. Whereas, if you were a paragon like James, you have the option to let her go after she promises to change her ways. We continue fighting our way through the facility, including a very brief sighting of a gunship similar to the one we fought when recruiting Garrus, and eventually find a room containing a data file. Interacting with this data file leads us to discovering that Elnora was in fact the one who had murdered Pitnefor's business partner, and on the recording she clearly shows no signs of remorse. Whilst useful information to give to Detective Anaya, this one must go down as a victory for the Renegades. The Paragon option on this occasion led to a murderer walking free. One of the rare times in this game that I actually get to feel pretty good about a Renegade decision I made in the game. And yep. uh, yeah, I'm actually kind of thankful that I gunned someone down rather than let them go. Yeah, and even though there's a little bit later on where the detective's like, oh yeah, thanks to the name, we'll definitely get her. It's like, I'll see in Mass Effect 3 whether you actually get her. <laughs> I'm coming back to find out. <laughs> we continue a little further into the facility and eventually run into that pesky gunship again, this time being forced to take it out. This fight is slightly different to the Garrus gunship fight as the area we're in is more open and has less cover, but otherwise is pretty similar to be honest. We take it out and continue on, eventually finding another Volus who is clearly high, exclaiming that he is a biotic god. I am a biotic god. I think things, and they happen. Fear me, lesser creatures, for I am biotics made flesh. You need help. Now we could use the Paragon interruption here to make him go have a lie down and sort of see the error of his ways a little bit. But why do that when we can send him into the next room to take on the Eclipse Captain Wasea with his godlike powers, eh, Will? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this guy was clearly having delusions of grandeur at this point, but I gotta say, it was pretty funny kind of saying, behind you, guy, you got yeah. this. Go for it. Yeah, the dude's just f***ing charged and he just runs in. He's <laughs> like, I'm gonna kick your ass. And it's like the worst shot ever. It like does nothing. And then he just gets owned. He gets one shot hit. Poor Yeah, violence. he literally, I think he uh, gets picked up by a biotic power and just blasted across yeah. the room. It's yeah. harsh, yeah. It's so fun. Very funny, though. Loved it. However this interaction plays out, we fight Wasea in the next room. This is a fairly standard fight. However, it is worth noting that this room is full of those Minogen X3 canisters that I mentioned earlier, which can buff Wasea's biotic abilities massively if we aren't careful. Also, I mean, we can buff our own biotic abilities using it as well. I was careful to stay fully toxic as long as I could throughout these areas because I was finding the biotic buff to be really quite significant. Yeah, again, that's not something I would ever have played with. So yeah, very good insight there. But Makes sense. Is the toxicity quite hard to avoid or is it sort of okay? Not particularly. You hang around in the crowd and a meter fills up in the bottom hand right. It goes down and dissipates fairly quickly, so it's pretty easy to keep on top of, really. A lot of the time, I found myself kind of playing the game slightly weird where I just shoot a canister and immediately run and stand in the mist and just start shooting spells at that point. Oh, just so, breathe it in. Just breathe it yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> just huffing this orange gas. <laughs> so we take out with Sarah and her minions and uh, obtain the name of the ship from a private terminal, the AML Demeter. We return to the police station, give the information to Samara, and she swears allegiance to us, joining our crew. At this point, we leave Ilium, returning to our ship, the Normandy. Once back on the Normandy, Joker tells us that the elusive man is waiting to talk to us in the comms room. We head off for another holographic meeting where he tells us that a collector ship has been disabled by a Turian raiding party, and that we should head over there immediately to check out the ship, and see if we can find anything useful. We agree and haul ass to the collector ship to see what's what. As we arrive aboard the collector ship, it appears to be derelict and completely deserted. As we head deeper into the ship, we see pods very similar to those we saw on Horizon that the collectors were using to carry the frozen humans on board. A little further in, we also find a pile of human corpses. 
leading to further questions about what the collectors may be doing with all the people they're abducting. We eventually find a collector terminal where we can upload ED, the Normandy's AI, and we make a startling discovery. It turns out that the collectors are experimenting on humans to find out exactly how their DNA works and compare it with that of other species. Not only that, but after analysing more data, Edie informs us that the Collectors are genetically modified Protheans, the ancient race from Mass Effect 1. There are so many questions. Why would the Protheans be genetically modified? Who did the modifications? I think it's fair to assume at this stage that the Reapers are somehow involved in this, given that they are the ones who had made the Protheans extinct. But what could their motives possibly be? Simply creating a subservient race? Or are there greater plots at work here? Interestingly, we also learn that the ship we are on is, in fact, the one that we had already encountered on Horizon, likely damaged from the automated defence turrets mentioned earlier. That would at least explain why the ship is motionless. And the other thing that's interesting about this little terminal here is there's a little pile of weapons on the floor next to it. And if you interact with said pile of weapons, you get an advanced weapons training menu that pops up. And depending on what class you are, this can be a number of different options. So I believe it is always an assault rifle, a shotgun, and a sniper rifle, and if you are a class that cannot use any of those weapons, you can unlock one of those weapons to use for the game. And if you're a class that has access to those weapons, you get a special weapon as one of the options. So Will, what did you pick here and why? Uh, so I'm an adept, and I've played for almost the majority of this entire playthrough, either using a heavy hand cannon or an SMG. Uh, so I finally decided to unlock a new weapon type and I unlocked the sniper because I figured that I want something with a bit more long range. Uh, sometimes even the powers don't quite lock onto enemies from quite such a distance. So that kind of fills in that gap of like extreme long range that I didn't have before. What about you? Well, I already could use the sniper. So I unlocked the sniper weapon, the Black Widow, I think it's called, or the Widow something. And oh, it's cool. just really fucking powerful. Basically one shots everything except for bosses with a headshot. Right, okay. Really yeah, good. Just a super powerful sniper. Super powerful. Only has one round per magazine, but that's fine because you're it's a one -shot. <laughs> popping out, shooting, and then popping back in, so it's fine. And uh, it's just really fucking powerful and uh, makes absolute mincemeat of a lot of the enemies and bosses in this game. Amazing gun. Best sniper in the game. Best weapon in the game, in my opinion. How many shots to take down a Scion? Should be two at the later levels when you've maxed up all the damage on the snipers and stuff, but three cool. for the majority of the game. Yeah, that's significant. Huge. Assuming crits, obviously. With our new weapons in tow, we continue to explore the ship. Up to this point, there have been no signs of any life whatsoever, be it humans in any of the pods that adorn the walls and ceilings of the ship, or the collectors themselves. Those Turian raiders must have done an incredibly thorough job, eh? We eventually find a command console in the middle of a large open chamber which we can use to contact the Normandy. However, as ED begins to mine data from the collector ship, something doesn't seem right. It turns out, and who could have seen this coming, that this was a trap set by the collectors and their leader Harbinger, who was now trying to overload the Normandy and upload himself to take control. Thankfully this fails, however Harbinger is not finished there and begins to bring the collector ship back online. If you remember the opening cutscene of the game where the original Normandy gets vaporised by this very ship, this is not something that we want to happen. As if by magic, a whole host of collectors begin to swarm the area, Cue the largest battle we've had up to this point. Yes. Epic battle this. Many, many moving, hexagonal-looking platforms. Limited cover. Yeah, I would say this is quite a tough fight. I died just a small full of handfuls on this, uh, on this fight, to be honest. Yeah, it's very tough on this. Uh, you need to be in cover a lot because you only have cover from a side, but they come above you and behind you and stuff as well, so you have to really be on your toes. Um, I found a great place to test my new sniper out, but I did run into ammo trouble here. They do drop thermal clips, but you have to move to get them. And that's the issue with this one. Because it starts off as just collectors, but then obviously Harbinger takes over some of the collectors sometimes and it just gives them a barrier and makes them a lot tougher. You also start to see scions and husks and even abominations in this section. So just all sorts of things going on. I was finding the biotic abilities really came into their own here because a lot of these platforms don't have walls to them. So you can knock enemies off in one hit, which is, uh, yeah, that was kind of my main tactic for, for this part in particular. But kind of also the rest, the rest of, the of the game at large <laughs> as well yeah. yeah no yeah i mean i imagine that shockwave was hella powerful in this bit because it kind of yeah. it kind of goes up on the platforms as well it doesn't just stop yeah it just travels along the ground doesn't exactly. it exactly yeah. so really good and uh the other thing that makes this fight quite brutal is uh it's long 
Like, there's a good, I want to say, eight to ten platforms that come in. Yes, and I think that it's one of those ones where you've kind of got to be killing the enemies for the thing to progress. If you don't kill, I think it's the scions that seem to be the key to yeah. unlock the next bit. Uh, but if you're not doing that, then yeah, you can be stuck in this bit for quite some time. But after an epic battle, Edie is finally able to plot us a path to safety using the platforms. She also explains to us that from data collected from the collector database, she now knows how we can pass through the Omega-4 relay, a relay which leads to a realm which no one has ever returned from and is almost certainly the lair of the collectors. And she also finds evidence to suggest that the elusive man knew that this was a trap. Pissed though we may be at this betrayal of trust, we have no time to dwell on it, as we must escape the ship before it is fully online. We fight our way through waves and waves of enemies, mainly collectors and husks, but we also have to fight another Praetorian like we had to fight on Horizon. Big zappy bug thing. Horrible. So eventually we make it back to our shuttle and can head back to the Normandy, barely escaping before the collector ship comes back online. Upon arrival back on the Normandy, we have a meeting with the elusive man. Regardless of whether we pick the Paragon or Renegade options in this conversation, we tear him a new one for putting us in danger, despite knowing that it was going to be a trap. The elusive man attempts to justify his actions here, and no matter what we think of him and his methods, we have to concede that his plan did work, and we now have valuable information about how to safely pass through the Omega-4 relay. What we need is a component called a Reaper IFF, that essentially will emit a special signal which will make the Omega-4 relay think that we are an ally of the Reapers and Collectors, allowing us safe passage. It also just so happens that the elusive man is aware of a dead Reaper orbiting a system in N7 space. Before we get to that, however, we have one more team member to recruit, an old friend no less. Yes, in case it wasn't already obvious, the Quarian we are going to recruit is our good friend Tally, who we have already seen back on Freedom's Progress at the start of the game. According to her dossier, she is on the planet of Hailstrom looking into the planet's equivalent of the sun, which seems to be dying much quicker than a sun should do. It also happens to be a Geth stronghold. Upon landing, we can actually see the effect of the sun's ageing as a local creature is fried when it steps into direct sunlight. Throughout our time on this planet, if we step into any direct sunlight, our shields will deplete leaving us vulnerable when outside of cover. A mechanic that was quite fun but actually really didn't put me in that much danger throughout this because there's plenty of shade. As we work our way through the facility heading deeper in to find Tally and her team, we have to fight through numerous Geth. Some who are at the facility already, and some who are parachuted in by dropship. Very reminiscent of Mass Effect 1, this. We eventually find a radio next to the corpse of a Quarian, with someone on the other end trying to make contact. We pick up the radio and begin talking with a Quarian called Cal Riga, who it turns out is responsible for making sure that Tally's mission is successful, and that she remains safe throughout. He is keen to work with us and offer aid, but is unable to do so as a Geth gunship has collapsed a pillar in front of some doors, stopping us from reaching him. Bullshit at this point. This fucking block is like six foot tall. You're telling me that Shefford can't just fucking climb over that? <laughs> we agreed to clear the debris so that we can link up and help each other. So we go ahead and collect demolition charges from nearby buildings, fighting our way through numerous Geth troops as we go, and are able to blast the collapsed pillar into oblivion, allowing us to enter the building and meet up with Cal Riga and his team. And I'm also going to bullshit this bit as well, because we collect these big old demolition charges and then the explosion's pathetic. I know! It's like a little pop. I can only assume that, like, in the future, they've figured out how to make explosions, like, more intense, but, like, less radius of explosion. Yeah, you're being very nice. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Upon entering the building, all we see are the corpses of numerous quarians and a single legless geth crawling towards us. We quickly dispatch this foe, I just punched him in the face to be honest with you, and head to a nearby communications console where we are able to speak to Tally. She tells us that she is currently stuck in another building deeper in the quarry that is being guarded by numerous geth. She has managed to keep the doors closed so far, but it is only a matter of time before the geth break through. We agree to help and Tally opens a sealed door nearby. We fight through some more geth before eventually meeting up with Cal Riga, now alone as his squad was wiped out and sporting some injuries. These injuries may seem like no more than a flesh wound, but to the Quarians, who have incredibly weak immune systems, the smallest infection can be catastrophic, sometimes even fatal. Cal Riga explains to us that he is pinned down by a geth colossus who has the ability to repair itself, meaning that he has been unable to make any headway to save Tally. He actually offers to help us in the fight, which I declined as I'm a paragon and didn't want him to risk his life. How did you handle this one, Will? Well, of course I took the help. You know, why turn down help when you're offered? And did he die? Uh, he got, he did get very badly injured, yes. 
Oh dear. And with that, the fight begins. And uh, this is quite a unique enemy in the game. Uh, the only time we see a Geth Colossus in this game, there was obviously a relatively large staple in Mass Effect 1. And it's changed a lot. It seems much bigger to me in this one. Uh, maybe because I was in a Mako most of the time when I was killing it in Mass Effect 1, to be fair. But uh, the other thing is, it did have the regen ability in Mass Effect 1, but it was never as powerful as this one was. You literally take it to half health bar, it just ducks into cover and just heals pretty much straight up. Right, right. So uh, you kind of have three options to do this fight. Uh, you can go straight through the middle, which is just dumb in my opinion. You can go around to the left, which is like more open but you're out of range of the colossus or you can go down the right which is a bit more sneaky but there's a lot more troops and stuff i believe that was the way it was uh, i personally went down the right because it was the easiest for my sniper playstyle, and uh, then you just flank the colossus and once you actually get to the flank position on that side it's you're just you're going to win there's just no way yeah, to beat you straightforward um how did you do it did you have a different way or did you go down the right as well uh no i took it head on uh just oh, you went head on damn yeah i mean it, the biotic abilities in this game are just so powerful at this point i also have like a barrier ability that gives me an extra overshield as well so yeah and i kind of figured the renegade option would be to take this thing head on i don't think renegade's gonna like sneak around or take the tactical thing they're just gonna go in guns blasting either way works i'm really trying to kind of integrate this mentality into not just the cutscenes and dialogue options but also the general play style and i'm finding that it's working pretty well well i mean to be honest it's a biotic it kind of makes sense so with the colossus destroyed and the way to tally now clear we enter the building where she has been holed up she thanks us for helping her and agrees to join us once more to help with our new mission even if she is a bit unsure about working with cerberus we return to the normandy now with the full crew and begin preparations for our next mission obtaining the reaper iff and that dear listeners is where we're going to end our tale for this week join us next week for the finale and with that, we come to the end of the show. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, you can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on X at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. One more humble request to our listeners, please do follow us on those social media platforms, please drop us a like, a cheeky five star rating, drop us a comment, it really means the world to us and it really helps us out. And thank you so much for the support that we've received so far as well. We do see the numbers creeping up and we're really pleased to see it as well. It's hugely appreciated. And that brings us to the end of the episode for this week. Goodbye. Later, guys.